Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Behind the Pursuit from Bourbon to Brand. However you found us, we're glad that you're here as we get behind the scenes with the Pursuit Spirits brand. I'm your host, Brian Bikey, and joining me, as always, we have Kenny and Moonshine U's latest graduate. Hey. Hey. Well, if you pay six grand, they'll they'll give you the certificate. <laughs> <laughs> but you learned a lot, though. I think that's that was the greatest thing. I'm, I'm almost kind of jealous because I want to go do it now. Even though you said, don't go, I'll just share the four-inch binder with you and we can, maybe I can put my my name and pencil underneath yours in the certificate or something. Yeah, it, I was like, kind of like, what can I possibly learn this week? I've been around this industry, you know, for six years now, Kenny and I talking to, but I mean, every, every session I took away a lot. It was a crash course. It was like drinking from a fire hose of just distillation and processes and maturation, fermentation, even all the way to distribution and a lot of uns. I think that was probably one of the things, though, that people probably don't realize about us is that, yes, we know a lot that happens inside the bourbon industry, but we've never operated a still before. No. So Not I, even close. Yeah. I was like, we know a, a good idea of how the process is supposed to work, but I don't, I don't know where the pull chain is or the start button or anything like that. Yeah. And I, to admit, before this week, I mean, I really sort of knew what heads hearts and tails was but uh now i have a really good understanding of it but uh don't ask me to break it down right now but <laughs> i won't do I, it I, yeah but it was, it was good and uh texted i was choking with nick i was like now i can come and help you make our he's the master stiller at bartstown and i was like i can come and help you make our next batch you know, <laughs> and you know what he said you remember what he said <laughs> yeah and he's like i need something to do or what did, what he said no, he said hold on guys i still want to keep my job yeah yeah hold on yeah, <laughs> yeah. and so uh because that because that I, I responded back i said well ryan's gonna finish up moonshine you and i'm just gonna have him double check your work <laughs> and go turn a few knobs if that's okay <laughs> yeah there's there's no knobs there it's all computer oh, yeah. touchscreen like programming the mash bill and that's takes off from there but. do they at least let you order class rings made out of barrel staves or anything <laughs> no class rings out of barrel staves but they do have a wide array of uh merchandise that you can purchase <laughs> <laughs> hats t-shirts and uh well but did purchase our first my first distillate of you know because when you go you start day one you're fermenting or no you actually mill the grains so you're put them through a miller grind them up and then the next day you put them in the cooker and let them cook for a couple of days and fermentation. So you go through the whole process and we actually made a uh, rum and bourbon and gin and vodka too. So yeah, we made all four. And so got to go through Now I didn't like do it by myself. I had Pete Kamer and, you know, uh, clay, uh, gosh, I can't remember his last name, but anyways, they were doing the whole process, but they did let you get hands on. So that was really cool that you could like learn about it, but then go out into the, the workshop and actually perform all the tasks that are necessary for distilling. Really cool. Yeah. So ready for, you know, my first batch of, um, of whatever. Barrels. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, I actually want to unpack this a little bit on this particular episode. So I know you said you didn't want to go into the, the tails and the, the heads and the hearts and all that kind of stuff. We're going to, we're going to, I do want to hear about this process and it's, obviously something I've heard about, but I'd be curious to see uh, in the end, I think I want to know how this kind of applies uh, to pr pursuit spirits or, or, you know, it's, it's use there, but just in general to kind of throw it out there, is this something that is mainly industry focused, industry folk focused people who want to go in industry, or is this something people can just go through to kind of understand more about the process too? Uh, I'd say probably out of 
I'd say probably 75% of the people that were there were wanting to either A, start their own distillery, start their own brand, or B, they worked for a bigger brand that wanted them to understand the whole process. So like a Diageo had people there, Brown Foreman had folks there, that Flavor Man had folks there that were learning. You know, just about, and honestly, I told Kenny, I was like, if I had taken, one of us had taken this before we started our own brand, it probably would have saved us at least the $6,000 it costed cost to even join it i mean it breaks down every part of the process distillation is obviously important but really what i came away from it it's it's really a lot like barbecuing it's a lot of it's just time and temperature knowing when you know the boiling points of certain congeners which are these little ethanols that make up alcohol knowing when they evaporate and when to cool them down and when to make your cuts at heads, hearts, and tails. But if you're using a column still, then it doesn't really matter because it does it all for you. And it really just kind of like debunked, made you realize it's not as complicated as one may think. And that really distilling is more, uh, once you kind of do it, it's like cooking your first filet. You go out there, you might need a meat thermometer every time just to check it because you're not sure if it's cooked perfectly to 125 before you pull it. So you're constantly like probing in this and that. But now when I throw a filet on, you know, I've done it enough where I can just throw it on and I know about three minutes on each side, it's, that's going to get to 125 and it's good to go. And distilling is a lot like that. Once you get comfortable with your equipment and know the temperatures and how it operates, it's a pretty repeatable process. And that it's, and it's quite frankly, quite boring. <laughs> uh, <laughs> once you kind of, I mean, I'm breaking, making it too simple. What for the craft, it what it, what it did for me is craft distillers are. I have much more respect for them because they're dealing with so many variables, and it's a lot of know and intuitiveness to know how to make your product. The big manufacturers that are distilling, that is just like a program science that is repeatable, and it doesn't stop. It's just a machine that. I mean, I love all the master distillers, but I mean. They're not doing much. It's a computer program, <laughs> continual process. And it just, what it made me realize is there's such a, crafted producers are amazing. And I will not give them such a hard time for having crafty or grainy product because it's it's a ton of work what they do. But also too, it just has more appreciation for the art of blending and maturation. That's where really the uh, art and this whole process comes in is that that blending and maturation part, you know, Andrew with ISC came in and did a whole two hour talk on barrel, you know, types and char levels and toast levels and where you're getting fl- different compounds on each floor of each rickhouse and how just this many degrees can vary the flavor compounds that get extracted and this and that. And so, so with vodka, vodka is like <laughs> the clearest, most purest form of alcohol, 190 proof. There are no flavor in it. There's nothing. But with bourbon, you're leaving, like, it's up to the distiller to decide how much congeners do I leave in there to, because they provide flavor. They also provide flaws, but they provide flavor. How much do I leave in there to also, that's going to go into a barrel that's going to add different flavors and compounds to it. And so it's finding that happy marriage between the both. And, you know, the big distilleries have figured that out hundreds of years ago, and they just keep replaying the same process. Two, it made me realize that most of this is 90, 89, 80 to 90% marketing and brand building because distilling is such a repeatable process. You know, with vodka, you know, 90% of the vodkas out there are not made by anyone. They're made by three people and they bring in neutral grain spirits from manufacturers and they run it through their still and they can say, 
you know, there's a weird law in our, from the government aspect that if you're the last part of the process, even if you run it through, you're still one time, you can say distilled by. So like Tito's, for example, they buy neutral grain spirits from people like MGP or these grain producers in, you know, Nebraska, bring it into their facility and then run it through their still, you know, one time. And it's handcrafted by Tito's gluten-free baby, you know, <laughs> all the tag. Work. It's all the tag. So you just realize that it's just a repeatable process and a lot of it's marketing, basically. It goes into a couple of interesting directions. So I want to jump over here to, to you, Kenny, just to talk about, because, you know, earlier on, in one of the episodes we talked about when we were talking about your all's involvement in, in kind of control into what recipes you all might take. I know that you're kind of less about all of the details when it comes to this. And then what I want to unpack a little bit after this is kind of something that Ryan just hit on, which is craft distillers and, and kind of some of the nuance that they might be able to pull out and we'll flesh out in a second, but yeah, jump over to you real quick. What do you, what are your thoughts on that? I mean, obviously there's just understanding the process as a whole, but, uh, what kind of can does it open up with all the variables that <laughs> yeah. that, that that means that that could be there? Yeah, as we as the week continually progressed, I kept getting more text messages from Brian that said, "I think we should do this, or we're going to need to do this." <laughs> and I'm just like, "Oh Jesus!" And so I mean, part of me was, and, and to be fair, when we first started on this journey of pursuit spirits, we said from the very get go, "We're not distillers. We're not going to be distillers." Our secret sauce is going to be in the blend. It's going to be in the maturation. It's the final product. It's not going to be, oh, what's your mash bill? Like we said that from the very beginning. But as fate would have it, we've had to pivot just a little bit to try and of course had to go and do these things just because of tax credits and bottle shop, gift shop sales and stuff like that. Maybe I'm dropping some tea leaves there for people to kind of pick up. But it's one of those things that we've had to go and we've had to make some, I wouldn't say sacrifices, but we've had to expand our capabilities of, of learning. Uh, but we've also had to figure out how much more money we need to drop in <laughs> actually owning and operating a still for doing some stuff that we need to be able to do. That's okay. I think that that allows us to kind of broaden our horizons a little bit more. Sure, we've got bourbon pursuit, but I guess now we can start gin pursuit. We can start all kinds of things, probably even vodka pursuit, but it sounds like you just boiled it yeah, all down there in one they, sentence they so. said if you if there's it's funny pete Kamer did a whole thing on vodka and at the end he goes if there's one thing you can take away from this don't try to make vodka because <laughs> <laughs> you can't do it like the big boys can <laughs> it's funny so the the other thing is you kind of directed to me too about you know what about this and and that's even when we started going we try to figure out which mash bills we want to use for all the different products and we've worked with all of course all of our partner distilleries and they would come in they go oh what would you like your mash bill to be and we go we're not distillers i don't know i don't want to mess with it because i know what your product tastes like at four years and it's pretty damn good i'm not going to ruin that and that's always been one of those kind of things where i look at it and i go well i don't want to rock the boat too much just because I like the product and I know the variables that we can control. Because even if you do have the same exact mash bill, that is that is uh, one of already a hundred variables that you got 99 other variables that are going to change. You've got the type of wood that's going to be used. You got the grain, you've got the warehouse location, you've got the climate, you've got all these different things that are going to impact it that aren't going to be the same exact product day in, day out. So by minimizing those variables, that's where I felt confident in going forward. But now as Ryan has gone through this, we'll see. I, I don't think that anything's off the table. We've been able to talk to our partners at Bartstown Bourbon Company and a few other different places. And 
they, you know, especially Bardstown, they they would be more than happy to give us our own custom mash bill. But we still haven't figured out whether we go down that route. I mean, we do use one of their, I don't know if you call it, a, I don't even call it a standard mash bill anymore because they don't use it in their own product line. No, they don't. They're, they're 78, It's 10, one of 12. the 60 mash bills they had made, and that's what we yeah. thought we was it, the best. <laughs> we don't need to make the 61st. I don't think that makes it well, too, special. And you learn that all these bourbon mash bills are within five po- points of each other anyways. And so it's really, it's it, to, to what I've learned, it doesn't make much difference. I mean, there, there is, I mean, if you want more spice in your whiskey, obviously you put more rye in there. If you want more creaminess, you put more wheat. If you want sweeter, oh, you works. do more corn. Man. You know, it's very basic stuff. It's not like the, the mash bill thing's kind of overrated and overhyped, I guess. Yeah. It's, it's definitely more in the, the the maturation side of things and the blending where you can really make a good product. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But we did do something cool with our, our latest thing over at Barstown Bourbon Company. So we had been using char three and char four barrels, but as Ryan had just mentioned, talking to Andrew Wiebrink, uh, having him come on, he's been on the, on our show for Bourbon Pursuit twice now, and he's a plethora of knowledge, just all the, the, the research they've done and everything like that, we decided to shake things up even more. And we not only just went with different char levels, we actually have char one, char two, char three, and char four barrels we're doing now. And we're actually going very heavy on char one because of the research that he did. But he also invited us out to Independence Dave to go and taste uh, the differences between not only just the char levels, but as well as the staves, how long they've been air dried. And so when you have something that was a three month versus an 18 versus a 36 month air dried, and we went from their standard, is it three month or six month? I think it's six month, yeah. Their standard six month, and we bumped it up to what's called Cooper's Select, which is their 18 month air dried staves. Now, we also got a chance to try the 36, but 36 just... Uh, diminishing returns at it's some marginally bitter i mean yeah. it's hard to detect if you weren't drinking them side by side you wouldn't like notice it yeah you know but and definitely at the 18 months it 18 was, like, months huge it was difference. huge difference huge difference and not only that it was going with a char one from all the research that he's shown is that it produces a much better whiskey at a younger age which for us a lot of the things that we want to do and build and scale is going to be between four to six and seven years old I'm sure there's going to be some barrels we hang on for 10, 12, 15 years, but that's why we got those char fours in there, right? We, we'll have some variability that we can play with down the line and kind of goes against our mantra of sticking uh, consistent with it. But I, I feel confident in this move forward only because I feel that we don't have to sacrifice on the quality and saying like, oh, are we, did we take it out of the barrel too early? I, I think that from the research that he's done, I feel much more confident going forward and be like, Char one, four to six years, 18 month air dried staves. Like I'm cross my fingers. I hope it's a home run, but this, this goes against all of my mantras of sticking to consistency and not striving, straying away from the variability aspect. But we're, we're putting a lot of our trust in what Andrew had done to be able to sit there and say like, yes, I think this is going to be a really good product at four to six years. And so that's, that's where the next, uh, well, Come find me in what was 2027. We'll see, see, see where we are. <laughs> yeah. And two, I think one valuable piece I learned was uh, learning how to detect and pick out flaws in new make whiskey. So when it's coming off the still and figuring out where those flaws, what your threshold is and this and that. So 
I'm definitely going to be much more a part of the process, like, you know, saying like... You're going to show up at Barstown and be like, hold on, I'm going to check these hearts and tails over that's here. Right. Well, that's what I told Nick. On Friday, they're distilling. I was like, how early you start? We got an interview at this time, but I'm, I'm going to show up at like seven and <laughs> check this stuff. It is amazing. And now, like, I can detect... I think I was talking about it, it was this, Brian, the other day. is like, I can drink stuff now that's been in barrels six to seven years and I can kind of taste those like flaws that are that people would call oh that's funky or that's like different or that they're actually flaws you know and sometimes there's that like the the bubble gum thing that people talk about right yeah like bubble gum or just funky fruit note like kind of dusty note that people like you know those are I know we've always talked about it before those those chalky Nickel thin like candies that the Nito or what? Nikki's no, what are those? Nico's, Nico's, yeah, yeah. Nico's. Is that yeah. is that a flaw? That's one of them, yeah. Okay, okay, yeah. I remember, I think we've done that on a few whiskey quickies, and we're like, I think this tastes like that. Now we can go, this whiskey's flawed. <laughs> I think, I think you, we just turned whiskey quickie into a professional review thing now. I oh, know, so it's gonna make me much more picky <laughs> on these things, yeah. I mean, even, even what you're saying right there with those the flaws and whatnot, that's, that's something that's always been such an interesting barrier for me coming from coffee in, into whiskey is because certain flavors and it shows the power of marketing, you know, all industries have a way of taking something and dressing it up into something else in terms of what you're going to expect. And yeah, that was one of them. Cause again, we've talked before in, in regards to coffee, like the, the over-exaggerated kind of funky fruit notes, some people really seem to like that in the whiskey, but in coffee, a lot of times that, you know, we don't really want that in terms of processing it. You know, people are leaning into it a little bit more now. I guess it, everything's out the window, right? Just like it is on this particular podcast. It, but it's uh, it's interesting, you know, trying to identify those and, and and pull that out. Well, I'm sure the consumer is constantly changing as well because we've had some of our pursuit series releases. Some people would probably try to be like, "That's so funky! It's crazy! It's good!" And then we send it off to somebody else to go try it. And they're like, it's flawed. (laughs) (laughs) Right. But but that's what the people want. Yeah. And and it's not necessarily that they're flaws. They're just, you know, there's certain congeners that are in alcohol that produce certain flavors. And sometimes they're just, they weren't distilled out quite at the right proportions that they need to be. And so those are flavors that some people might like, but some people might not like, you know, as far as like a, you know, if you're wanting to build a brand of consistent <laughs> flavor profiles, you need the, the distillate to be clean and those congener levels need to be like a precisely the way you want them coming off the still so that when they, when that you throw that variable of the aging component in it, that they play nice together and it just doesn't throw off these wild fla- flavor profiles. Was there any other topics that came up of, of how do you fix a bad distillate? Because some people just might throw it in a barrel and go, well, we'll see you in six years. Or is there something that's, because I think that Lauren, uh, my wife, we had talked about it at some point and, and she goes, how does something stay in a barrel for eight years and it still tastes bad? And I said, I don't know, I guess just garbage in, garbage out. <laughs> but I don't know if that's truly what it is or if it's just people can try and just like hope the barrel fixes something. Well, I mean, the barrel does fix a lot because you got, you know, that charcoal element, you know, that you're playing with that will filter out a lot of things. And then to, as you dump, but the the barrel and the flavors you extract from that, but two, it's knowing if you have bad distillate coming off, you need to just run it through again. <laughs> Typically, with a column still, you're not really going to have that because it's so streamlined and like it, it's hard to explain over a podcast. But it's it, okay, you've got like ten more minutes. Okay, go explain it to us. <laughs> <laughs> but with like a pot still, you know, you're you're having, um, you know, basically you got a big, I guess, bowl or 
you know, tank and you're heating it up and these compounds evaporate at certain temperatures. You're heating it up and it say like one, and I can't remember exactly what they are, but say at like 160, this certain compound starts to vaporize and it's working its way up the, you know, the still head and over to the condenser into the, and then to the spirits tank. Well, not all those compounds. So you're going over there, you're trying those. And then with, but with the column still, it's, there's all these plates that are like, you know, it's hitting. And so basically each column is like its own individual, like pot still. And like, as it moves up each plate, there's congeners that are making it through it. And some that are falling back down and getting redistilled. So they're, it's just constantly cleaning it up as it moves through. So that by the time it gets all the way to the top, you're getting a pretty consistent distillate coming down. Or I'm sorry, actually, in a column still, it's starting at the top, <laughs> going through the bottom and coming out because you pump up the beer at the top and it's falling all the way down. And so certain elements are making it its way up and certain are going down. And so it just cleans it up a lot better. Whereas a pot still, it's really at the discretion of a human to identify those. The column still takes all that identification out. It just does it on its, on its own. And where a lot of craft producers use is like, a, they call it a hybrid still. You have the pot who that heats it up and then, but it also has columns. It's still not as consistent as a column still. So you, you, it gives you kind of some playfulness, but you sacrifice consistency. And it just really depends what you want. Like if you're doing single malts, column stills are, I mean, sorry, pot stills are great because you can, you can kind of get these different flavor, funky flavor profiles with it. But if you're wanting to like make a bourbon or a vodka or rum, it's very inefficient because you're constantly having to heat up, cool down, heat up, cool down, whereas a column just kind of runs. Does that make sense? I don't know. I it's, think you I think you, you narrowed it down. All of a sudden, it's going to be you and Danny Khan just rubbing shoulders and talking, gosh, talking at know. the, you know, at the Master Distillers Conference in 2023 and hanging out. Well, here's one thing that you had mentioned the, in early in the episode, talking about you have a new appreciation for craft whiskey. And, I, and this this might seem like a little bit of a tangent, but I don't think it is that much. The The, the two things that I find most interesting when I hear people talk about whiskey that are the extremes they don't like. I hear people say they don't like it to taste grainy. And then you hear a lot of people talk about how they don't like it to be too oaky. And I find it interesting, given that those are the two things that make, <laughs> make up the what whiskey. the product is. They It's made up of grains, but they don't want it to taste like that. And, you know, especially as I've, as I've been on a lot of <laughs> Don't tours. Don't you know, people just want flavored whiskey. <laughs> again, and I'd love to hear other people, you know, chime in on this podcast at PursuitSpirits.com. I'd love to hear where you all are in terms of what you enjoy in, in the flavor pocket. But I find it interesting because a lot of master distillers, you know, they'll talk about it, its peak range. And maybe it's because they also have to look at it from how many, how many barrels or how many, how much liquid is in the barrel before there's a little bit of diminishing return, not just on taste, but in terms of volume as well but i do find it interesting that they they find a sweet spot where maybe it interacts with the char but it doesn't exactly interact with the oak i'm like well man that that flavor wouldn't be there if not for that barrel and like what you just said earlier kenny about how the differences in in the cooperages or the toast levels make make a big deal but and i know that we see that a lot with the craft distillers starting to be a little bit more transparent about those sort of details much to your chagrin but it's interesting that we seem to push away, and I notice a lot in craft distillers, a lot of craft distillers, you do notice more graininess, and I wrestle with this because I don't know if it's, are you tasting the pureness of the distillate? Are you tasting youthfulness? Like it's, it's something to wrestle with because you can have old, mature heritage products taste grainy, and you're like, ugh, and then are you supposed to turn around in a 
in a different product from a different person and say, oh yeah, let's celebrate this. It's, it's confusing, I would think, for a consumer. However, you know, I, I think about this because there's so many products on the shelf in certain experiences and it's like, does someone need to be told what they're going to experience? Do they have to, you know, they're, they're purchasing something. Does it need to meet a specific expectation? How do you meet that expectation when everyone's flavor profiles are all over the place? But it goes back to something that came up in an email this past week. One of the people who had emailed in was giving us feedback from a couple of episodes ago, just kind of giving us some user data and was saying they've gotten to the point where when they get together with people, it's less about trying all these big bottles or about, you know, b- big hitters or, or something like that. Like it's the LTOs and stuff. Sure. Yeah. It's more so how, how can we just try new things? And, and it's about the excitement for them to share something with people that they may not have tried before. And that's kind of what they get out of the body share. And I feel like what you're talking about and being able to learn those processes and how that comes into pursuit spirits is similar to how we start seeing with the craft distillers, which is that same sort of thing. You're starting to see a break from the regular, a break from the traditional plug and play that people have been doing for a hundred years, like you said, and starting to see some experimentation with things. I think we're still trying to figure out though, how do you receive what people are playing with and, and wrestle with that based on what you're, you're kind of fed or, you know, yeah. you're supposed to like. From what I learned with craft, just, and I know somebody's probably getting here and just rip apart everything I just said. <laughs> and to be fair, I'm not an expert. I went to six days of distilling I'm, and I'm doing the best I can. But he to, graduated, guys. That's, that's six more days than I went. Yeah, they were nine hour days though. So, <laughs> but. Uh, you stayed at a holiday in the night before. But with the, I've learned that it's not necessarily the graininess you're tasting with craft distillate. It's more of that, that they just don't have the the setups to refine the distillate as well as a big column still at Heaven Hill has or Old Forester or this or that. And you're also too, you're relying on a person to decide basically what f- the flavors are in a whiskey when it comes off are congeners. Yes, the grains give it some flavor, but there's congeners and the alcohol that provide different and I can't remember their names. People will drill me on it. But there's like a list of like 12 or 16 of them. And they all have different flavor profiles. And where craft comes in and where you get these flavors is because somebody's deciding that, okay, I think this amount of congeners is okay to leave in our distillate to provide these flavors. And those might come off as grainy to someone, but they're it's it's just flavors of the alcohol that are left there. And then combined with the wood. And so it's more of a product that's just been crafted by someone versus a, a machine, I guess. Does that make sense? No, that, that definitely makes sense. You know, I think there's, <laughs> I go back to even Alan Bishop's tagline for Spirits of French Lick, respect the grain. Right. That's, yeah. And that's definitely been his his mantra and, and the way that he's distilled and the way that he's portrayed his products out there too. But that was always been one of those things that I always went back to whenever we tasted something for Whiskey Quickie and we would call it grain forward, we would immediately just go, eh, it's probably pot still. <laughs> I mean, yeah. that's that's probably the the, the crux of, of what it comes down to. But I think there's there's going to be a market for everything. It'd be a market for everybody. The, the thing that I think has been, I don't know, maybe it's because a lot of us have been brainwashed. A lot of us have been brainwashed in bourbon because the big six have created bourbon for so long and it's all been through column stills. That's just what we assume it's yeah. supposed to be. I mean, it goes back to the banana and the gorilla in the zoo. You ever heard that analogy where there's a, 
there's a they put a banana out there maybe it's a monkey whatever it is they put a banana out there and the first monkey tries to go and get it and as he's reaching for it they take a fire hose and they spray him down and it sprays him back he goes and reaches for it again they sp- spray a fire hose on him so he knows not to go touch the banana so then they bring another monkey in there and the monkey uh, the second and they they put the banana out there then the second monkey tries to go and get it and they spray both the monkeys and so they realize like okay anybody that goes and gets this banana you're going to get sprayed. So they bring in a third monkey and the third monkey goes for it. And the two monkeys stop the the, fir- the <laughs> third monkey from going to get it. And so we, they have no idea. The third monkey has no idea that they're going to get sprayed. They stop it. So now they remove the first two monkeys. They bring in another monkey and that fourth monkey tries to go grab the banana, but the third monkey goes and stops them. And it's just one of those things that's like, but why did he stop him? He doesn't know. That's just the way it is. That's, yeah. that's the way that they've been accustomed. It's like travel instincts. Right? Exactly. Yeah. And so maybe that has just been us in bourbon that we look at pretty much what's out there on the shelves and we go, well, that's just, that's what good bourbon is. That's what it is. It comes from the big six. That's the way it's got to be. But maybe there's a room for exploration. But I know at least in my flavor profile, and I know probably from a lot of ours too, that we still prefer the column still because maybe that's just what we've been accustomed to. And we're like, ah, I think that tastes like better bourbon. Yeah. And, and but it's, uh, yeah. It's, whereas I think too, we get in trouble with, I guess, reviewing a craft distillery versus a legacy brand or legacy bourbon is that like, you know, this was an individual that created this, you know, whereas this is like this cog and machine that's created this. And, you know, to me, this is, I have much more respect now for that. Even though it might not produce the flavors that I want, I have a greater appreciation of what they're doing. Yeah, <laughs> I guess I guess the big takeaway from that particular thing is whether or not, you know, this is something that just kind of plays in the back of my head sometimes is whether or not people should have or think about more context when it comes to that. Or if it, again, at the end of the day, it's like, it just got to be good according to the third monkey standard, right? <laughs> yeah. So it's a, I think it's a question that would be answered, but I'd love to hear back from people on the show podcast at pursuitspirits.com let us know what are the types of things that you're interested in and in in how willing are you to try other flavors out there what do you take into consideration do you take any of this stuff in consideration or does it just have to meet a specific x y and z and that's what's considered good guys another interesting topic i hope it was informational for you all let us know send us an email let us know if you have other podcast topics or any questions for the guys that you all want us to get into podcast at pursuitspirits.com. Once again, thanks as always for tuning into the show. And until next time, we'll see you all later. Toodles. <laughs>